0: In May 2021, the high rates of U.S. workers quitting their jobs led to Anthony Klotz, who was a professor at Texas A&M, coining the term, the Great Resignation. Now, he was playing on the phrase, the Great Depression, which we know is the worst economic downturn in the history of the industrialized world. And what has seemingly happened and what he was noting, maybe related to the pandemic, but maybe not, is that there is an alarming increase in resignations. One survey said that one in five are likely to change jobs in the next 12 months. Another 35% of respondents said they were not satisfied with how much money they make. Generation Z, which in the workforce is about ages 18 to 25, are far less satisfied with their work Than boomers. They are also the most anxious, believing that their jobs will possibly be replaced by technology. There is no question that over the past couple of years the way that we think about work and the way that we work has dramatically been impacted by things like remote work, artificial intelligence, a global economy, travel restrictions, a lack of workers in the trades, a rising cost of college education. Yet at the same time, None of us would argue that work still remains deeply important to us. Many of us are willing to change work when it loses its sense of joy and meaning. Many of us, when we think about work, realize that it's more than just a paycheck. Some of us struggle to describe ourselves apart from the work that we do. Introducing ourselves and quickly following our name with what we do for work some of us struggling to have an identity apart from the work maybe suggesting that maybe for some of us work is too important. There's also the reality that we need to work to live. We need to pay bills. We need to put food on the table. You can factor into that how we think about things like retirement. Some of you may actually have heard that one of the new millennial dreams is actually early retirement. To work in such a way so that in your 40s you can begin retirement have the live out the dream of being able to retire early. And, and now, no matter how you work and think about work, whether you're trying to work hard so you don't have to work, or whether you are frustrated with your job, or whether you love your job, the reality is that work is a big deal. There's possibly nothing in your life that you will spend more time doing than your job. And so I think it's fitting, based on the current world in which we live, to ask this question, should I quit my job? Now, if we were doing a survey, which I won't, um, but, but if I were doing a survey of this room, I, w- I would be willing to bet that most of us in this room have asked that question over the past 12 months. And it's a question that has been asked repeatedly over the past couple of years because of the way that work has changed, because of the demands of our culture, because of the things that influence work. And honestly, if I'm being honest with you, um, unfortunately, we won't be able to actually answer that question throughout this series for you. Um, And so maybe some of you came in expecting, like, you know what, we're going to get the answer to that question. Um, Some of you are preparing, like, can I submit my resignation on Monday because we're going to answer the question. Like, we're good. Um, We're not going to be able to do that for you. Um, But we are going to be able to talk about some things that are important in how we think about work. And since I can't answer that question for you because I don't know your unique situation and the influences. I don't know what God is calling you to. But what I do know is God has a lot to say about our work. And maybe your question isn't, should you do the job you're doing? Maybe your question is just, how do you find a job that makes you feel fulfilled? Maybe you are in high school and soon going to college and thinking about, how do I even figure out what I want to do with my life? How do I understand things like calling and work? Some of us look at our current situations and just are trying to ask, is this what God wants for me? Or how do I just respond in a situation that doesn't seem like the ideal work situation? With all of those questions, I think the best uh, place for us to begin is in the beginning. If you would, in your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 2. We are going to spend some time in the beginning of the creation of, of, of humanity... Now what's interesting in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we, we get the creation narrative of how God creates the heavens and the earth. Now Genesis 1 gives us one picture of that creation story, and it gives this picture of God, what God how God creates on day 1, day 2, day 3. Genesis 2 actually gives us a, this, another perspective focused on the creation of humanity. Now what's interesting about this is is just like Genesis paints for us a picture of creation, there are also many competing creation myths that also happened around the time of Genesis. And what you should know is that there are certain parallels in the language that Genesis would use when it talks about the creation of the world. The reason that happens, though, the reason that happens, despite what a college professor might say, is not because Genesis is borrowing from ancient Near Eastern creation myths. The reason that happens is that's just the language of the world at the time Genesis was written. And so, in, in a very real way, if you and I were to talk about God's creation, and we were to say, we're, you know, in, in today's age, we're going to write how God made everything, we would use certain language based on how we know the world works. We would describe the galaxies and the solar system. We would describe the stars and the planets, the speed of light. We could talk about matter and atoms. Why? Because that's the language we have available to us to describe something that's beyond our comprehension. At the time of Genesis, the the language that they had, it was very familiar to the author of Genesis and the way God chose to speak into that world. There are some overlaps in the way that other creation myths would talk about the creation story. And the reason that's important, because what you will find in Genesis 1 and 2 are key distinctions that set the Christian story apart. Things about the understanding of God and the world in which God made that no other religion said about the way things work. And so I want to read in Genesis 2 because the way Genesis 2 describes the, w- w- the way God made man and the role of work stands apart from any other creation story. In Genesis 2 verse 15 it says this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man. "...you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die." The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of out of the ground all the beasts of the field, the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. He never mentions cats. But for the Adam, no suitable helper was found. Now let, let me pause there. For a minute, because it's really important when we look at Genesis 2 and how God creates everything. God makes the heavens and the earth. God creates humanity. He places him in this garden and he gives him work to do in Genesis 2. Work comes before the fall, before sin is ever a part of the story. Humanity is given work to do. Now, this is interesting because it actually stands in stark contrast to the way the ancient Near Eastern religions would describe the the creation of man. In fact, um, one of the most popular creation narratives at the time of Genesis was the Enuma Elish, which we've referenced before. um, The Enuma Elish from Babylon. And in this story, the creation story, the gods are tired of working. And so the gods complain to Marduk, who's the king of gods, and they come up with a plan to outsource the workload to humanity. Now, what's interesting about that, as I would argue, for many Americans, that's the same way we think about work. That work is bad, work is exhausting, and we need to figure out whatever way possible to offload that work to somebody else so we can rest and take it easy. That many of us actually have an ancient Near Eastern view based on a creation myth instead of what the scriptures teach us is, is, it means to be made in the image of God. And in this source, when it describes the creation of man, here's actually how it says it. I will establish a savage. Man shall be his name he shall be charged with the service of the gods that they might be at ease. In other words, according to that worldview, man was just meant to be a slave to the gods in order to do the things the gods didn't want to do. Work was beneath the gods. Work was the punishment. Work was bad. But notice the language that we just read in Genesis is different. In Genesis, man is made in the image of God. Man is like God. Man actually works because God works. God is designer and artist and engineer and zoologist and musician and shepherd. And because God is all of those things, he invites man and woman to become all of those things. Not giving them work as punishment, but giving them work because it's significant, because it matters. And so God creates Adam and gives him work to do, caring for the garden, taking care of the garden and naming the animals. It tells us that God created Eve to be a helper. Now women, when you hear that word helper, it doesn't mean like like an assistant. Like like it's like Adam's the boss and and she's like the sidekick and just does whatever he doesn't want to do. The word helper is the same word the Bible used to describe God. It's a a word that describes the strength and the power of God. And so instead we should read it, that Adam couldn't do the work by himself. He needed the strength of a woman, Eve, to help him do what was needed to do in the world, to care for God's creation. And so together they would do this good, meaningful work. The problem is we often equate work with being cursed. That work's bad. We should get away from it. We should run away from it. We should avoid it at all costs. Work's not a curse. The problem is we begin to equate it with a a curse when we miss what work was intended to be. And when we equate work with a curse, we try to escape it. We try to avoid it. We try to run from it instead of facing the problems that it presents for us. Now, when Genesis described the first work, which we read in verse 15, it said this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Those two phrases can help give us a framework to understand the intention, the ideal way that work is meant to be, the way that God created it before sin entered into the picture. Now, that phrase, to work it, we could translate the phrase to work it as service. Work is meant to be an act of service. That we serve God, not because, he, not because he demands it, but because it's an act of worship to him. And not only is it just an act of service to God, but in a very real way, they are serving the creation that God made. They're serving the animals by giving them names. They're serving the garden by taking care of it, by being good stewards for it. In a very real sense, the work of God's creation is not actually finished when God rests. The animals don't have names, and new things would be created, and eventually it would even be civilized. They continue to do this good work. Not only is it in service of God, though, but Adam is doing work to serve Eve. Eve is doing work to serve Adam. They are serving their family. They are serving one another. And your work, your work is an act of service. That In the work that you're doing, maybe you're serving your family. That you know by going to work, you are providing and protecting and caring for the people who God has put in your care. And for some of you, that's enough to actually endure a really crappy job. Like some of you know that I can get up in the morning, and although the work is hard, the people I'm serving make it worth it. And that's an okay reason to continue doing what you're doing. Also in the work, though, you serve the people you work with. You serve the employees you lead. You serve those who are on your team. You serve your coworkers. You serve those who report to you and those you report to. You serve your clients, you serve your customers, you serve your community, you serve the world around us. All of it is an act of service. And the reason we can do that as followers of Jesus is because God doesn't need those good works in order to be happy with us. We can do it because we know people who need what we have to offer. Now, not only does it say... That the job was to work it. But this phrase, take care of it, is a, is a phrase that on one hand it gives a sense that they're protecting, they're guarding it. I think the best translation that we could probably use is the word cultivate. There's a sense that there are some materials that are there in the garden. And part of the job is to take what God placed and to make it into something new. To actually have a step of building it into something else that is not already there. The best picture I, can ha- I have of that would be the picture of of Minecraft, which we'll get to in just a second. Now, the reason I came up with that picture and thought of that as an idea um, comes a little bit before verse 15, a small detail that is included in the creation story that I've always read over And in verse 8, it actually tells us, the Lord God planted a garden in the east, and there he put the manied form. And then it describes the garden, all kinds of things. There's trees that look good to eat. There's a tree of life, the tree of knowledge, good and evil. A river separates into four. All these details, which gives us, like, it's almost as though it's painting a picture for our imagination. And then verse 12 says this, and I'm like, when I read this, I wonder, like, why do you include that? Verse 12 tells us the gold of the land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. Why does that matter? Now the reason it matters is because when Adam and Eve were given work, part of how we can understand the work that they were given to do is we also need to know the raw materials they had. Because some of what Adam and Eve could make was dependent on this. They could actually create something new, which is what brings me to Minecraft and Steve and Minecraft. The way that Steve works in the game, the whole object of the game, is you are mining and finding resources and you can create new things. You virtually can do all kinds of things in the game and you can create almost anything that comes to your mind. But the only way you can create something is if you actually have the resources to actually create that. If all that you have is dirt blocks or grass blocks, you can't really make much. In order to make this, you would need this. The raw material is necessary in order to build something new in a Minecraft creation. The same thing is true for Adam and Eve. In fact, God includes that in the scriptures. In order for Adam and Eve to build something new, the raw materials were an important part of the understanding of what they were making. Our work is meant to be an act of service, good for someone else... And it's also meant to be an, a creative act where what we create is connected to the resources that we start with. Whether those be the raw materials, whether those be personalities and talents, whether that be the people that you lead or raise, all of those are a part of the work that you do. And so when a musician uses an instrument to rearrange sounds and notes and words into a song, he is cultivating something new, something that previously didn't exist in the world, and bringing that into fruition. When the manager rearranges a team and the skills and the giftedness so that they might do better or more efficient work, he is cultivating something. He is using the raw materials when you are raising kids and you're taking your life experiences and the things you've read in the community you have in order to learn how to use those materials in order to shape a human being who is made in the image of God to help them discover who God has meant them to be, you are cultivating something new in that other person. It's a creative, cultivating work that is also an act of service. Genesis 2 gives us that picture. A picture that we are serving one another for the greater good. And that act of service is a work of cultivation. Unfortunately, after Genesis 2 is Genesis 3. Because the story doesn't end there. And Genesis 3, I would suggest is why work feels the way that it does. It's the reason why even in some of the most significant work that gives you the most se- significant senses of meaning can also be really, really hard. Why you might have a job that you thought was the dream job. And why there's still difficult conversations and relationships. Why there's still heartache and brokenness. It's because of Genesis 3 that we live in a sinful and broken world. And so I want to read that for us because it specifically speaks into our understanding of work. Verse 14 says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you'll give birth to children. Which, side note, don't um, ever quote that when your wife's going into labor. Um, Even if it's a joke, it, it did not go very well. Um, Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Verse 17. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. All of that reminds us that work is hard. The work of having kids and raising kids is hard and painful work. The work that you go to... The responsibilities in the workplace, the demands is difficult, painful work. And that happens because although it was good and God created it to be a gift, sin has put a curse on how we experience that. Now it's important to know when I say curse, doesn't mean like casting a spell. It just means that as a result of sin, there is irreversible changes to the way we experience things like family and work. All of human effort to work, to create, to reproduce, to be civilized is also filled with pain and burnout and dissatisfaction and injustice and layoffs and resignation, wanting more vacation time. It means that some of you will have a job that you really want, but you can't get paid for. It means that for some of you, you'll have a job that you really hate, but you get paid really well for. It means some of you will have the ideal job in the worst work environment. Now the two phrases in Genesis 3 that describe so well the difficulties of work are the phrases the thorns and thistles and pain in childbirth. Now the author here is describing literal pain in childbirth that because of the curse of sin that there, there is pain associated with a, fam- with a family coming into fruition. Yet even, if, even knowing that, I would argue you can expand it far beyond just the pains of labor, that parenting is hard work, that it's painful. There are conversations that you never thought you would have with your kids. You, there, are, there are moments where you regret the things that you said to your kids, and you and you feel that pain as a parent. There are anxieties and worries that you never even knew you would worry about certain things until you had kids. Why? Because... Because of sin, it is now painful to do the things that God desires. Having a family, raising a family to be faithful and to follow God. I also think, though, that same language, the pains of childbirth, is an incredible metaphor when we talk about work. Because many, in fact, even especially in areas where there's creative work, often that work is described as there's something on the inside of you. A dream, an idea, a desire, a vision, the way you want to lead a team, the way you want to raise a, a, a human, the, 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 the kids in your classroom and how you want to lead them, the art you're creating. There's something on the inside that you want to exist out in the world and it is painful to bring that into existence. It's painful because maybe people don't see things the way that you see or maybe the ideal picture in your mind gets pushed back. And so there, there is the pains of bringing that To birth, any act of creation is hard. But what we also know from the story of Adam and Eve, they see that it's worth it. They have kids. They heard that and they still had a family. Because what they understood is that what is hard is also good. That it actually had a significance for the world in which they lived. Now, the language that also gets used of the thorns and thistles, I think, is a helpful metaphor because it it describes the actual day in and day out of work that Adam and Eve were doing. They're working the ground. They're in the garden. And if you are gardening before there were thorns and thistles, that work was really nice. And before the, the heat of the sun was exhausting, like you could just you could do that work really well. In fact, I would argue that in our understanding of the scriptures, that we could assume that in the new creation, in the ha- new heaven and new earth, that all of the story leads up to, that we will still have work to do, that there will still be responsibility and significance in work. It just won't be painful, it won't be exhausting. And so in this work, as Adam and Eve would work the garden, there were thorns and thistles. So their hands would be bloodied, their bodies would be achy, they would be tired at the end of the day. Why? Because the ground was working against their goals. And sometimes for us, sometimes your work feels like it's working against you. Sometimes the things that you know is best for your company, the things that you know is best for your own emotional well-being, sometimes the job actually is working against those things. And you'll feel undervalued, underpaid, overworked, burnt out, far more tired than you ever thought possible because of the thorns and thistles. Because the work is hard. Because relationships, because human beings working with other human beings is difficult. Yet for Adam and Eve, they do the work anyways. They do the work knowing that the ground has a different goal than they have. And maybe for you, you continue to do the work knowing that it's hard, knowing that there are days where you feel bloodied and bruised, knowing that sometimes what the client wants and what you want don't match up, and so it's difficult. Knowing that sometimes when you work with other people, you don't see things the same way, and it's really, really hard. I think this is why Patrick Galencioni, who is an incredible author on leadership and teams, describes, describes work this way and says the key ingredient to building trust is not time, it's courage. Because what he understands is if the world in which we are doing work requires relationships, the things that it need isn't time. Time just gives more opportunity for the thorns and thistles to hurt more. He sees that it's actually the courage to do the work knowing it might be painful. To having the courage to forgive knowing that somebody might not respond the way you thought they would. To having the courage to continue the relationship knowing that the vulnerability of trusting requires the possibility that you could be hurt again. To have the courage to doing the work knowing that the way the company, the way the culture, the way your community, the way the people you're serving might see the work you're trying to do, they might see it as, as different than the way that you see it. Knowing that the courage it takes to do what is right might sometimes mean you experience consequences for doing the right thing. It requires courage. That's What we see in humanity as Adam and Eve do the work that God called them to do, it's the courage to know the work is hard, but it is still good. It is a gift. Dorothy Sayers is is an author who wrote this about how we understand work. She said, what is the Christian understanding of work? It is that work is not primarily a thing one does to live, but the thing one lives to do. It is, or it should be, the full expression of the worker's faculties, the medium in which he offers himself to God. In other words, the reason work has meaning and the reason that we can actually do the work even though it's hard is because it is an expression of the worker's faculties. In other words, the raw material, the raw material that makes us us is what we bring into the work ...that we do and we use that to cultivate, to create something good. Now as we think about our work, as we wrestle with the situations that we are in, I think there are a couple things that we can do with that. The things that we can remember. First, I think it's very valuable to remember who our work is for. Because Jesus doesn't need your resume. He's not evaluating your job performance. Jesus is satisfied with you. He approves of you based, based on his death or resurrection. It has nothing to do with what your work is like right now. And because Jesus redeems you, he can also redeem your work no matter how painful it is. No matter what the thorns and thistles that you experience are, Jesus can redeem that work because he doesn't need it, but he knows people who do. He knows people who need what you have to offer. And so what I want to give to you as we end today is a grid that you can work through over the course of the next week. And what I'd encourage you to do, and we've spent some time in all of these categories today, is I want you to spend some time over the course of the next week thinking and praying through these based on your current situation. And that can be work that you are paid to do. It can be wor- work you do as a parent. It can be work you do as a volunteer. If you're retired and thinking about how do I want to spend my time as a v- volunteering and serving. You can use whatever kind of work you want to put into that. But I want to encourage you to think through and pray through all of these in order to ask God, God, what do you want me to know? What do you want me to do in the work that I have? And so you start in the upper left in this category of service. Ask the question, who am I serving? And there might be several layers to who you're serving. You might be able to even prioritize, like I'm serving my family, I'm serving clients or customers or community. Try to unpack as many possible ways that you can understand who it is you're serving, and then move to the one right to the right and ask, what makes serving these people difficult? What is it about this work that is painful? And that could be related to the people that you're serving, or it could be just related to the world and what you live in that makes trying to serve those people. If you're trying to deliver a product and the resources aren't available to make that product, that makes that makes serving those people with that product difficult. And then move down over here, cultivation. What is it that you're creating? What is it that you are making? And again, that could be a thing, but that could be an idea different than it could be a team. It could be an organization. It could be the kind of person you are trying to raise your kids to be. What is it that you are creating? And then also ask, what resources do I have to make that? What is the raw materials that you are working with? And then move to the question of the pain. What makes creating that difficult? Why is this so hard? And then as you use that grid, I would encourage you just to bring that to Jesus to let this inform just a better understanding of what's my current situation. And for some of you, you might be asking, you might be asking God, all right, and looking at these things and saying, all right, this, the significance of this is worth the pain of this. Some of you might be talking to God and you might realize that the pain of this means maybe it's time for something different and that doesn't remove the significance of what I have done or change the significance of what I might do. I don't know what the answer to your situation is, but I do know is as you bring all of this to God, you can bring your questions and your doubts and you can invite God to help sort it out, to follow his lead into whatever it is that that is next. And so I just wanna pray for you. I mean, pray over your situations as you then do that throughout the week. Jesus, we just pray for all the situations that are brought into this room situations that I know um, little about, situations that we come with questions and doubts about our jobs, about our callings, about our current situations. God, I just pray that you would help us to sort those things out, that you would give us wisdom into what you want us to do, that you would surround us with people who can speak wisdom and life and hope into our situations. God, I pray that your voice would be clear to us that as we wrestle with and pray through these things, that we would be able to hear your voice speak, that you would be able to tell us what's next. So I pray that you would help us to follow your lead. You know that often your lead is scary, and so I pray that you would give us courage, that you would give us courage to say the right thing, to do the right thing, to go where you are sending us. Help us to have the clarity in hearing your voice and following your lead, Jesus. I pray this over every situation that is brought into this room that you would ease those burdens and give direction. In your name we pray.